0: fx medicine is evolving the same evidence-based research ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats to help co-create it with us and for member rewards sign up at fxmedicine.com.au for now enjoy this podcast previously
1: recorded with andrew whitfield cook This podcast is intended as healthcare
0: practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis
1: or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line is Dr. Mike Armour, who joined Nickham in 2016 as a postdoctoral research fellow with areas of interest in women's health. Welcome, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. We'd, I don't want to get into a long bio, but just recap for our viewers your a little bit of your history and where you've come from, because you've got uh, areas of expertise in natural health as well as bioscience, correct?
0: Yes, yeah. So um, I started off with an a honours degree in biomedicine many years ago. And then um, since then, I, I trained as a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, so an acupuncturist and a herbalist. And yep. then I did my PhD um, at Western Sydney in uh, 20... Oh, well, I finished it in 20... 16 and um, that was in acupuncture for period pain and then since then most of my research has been on women's health um, with two areas endometriosis and primary dysmenorrhea
1: so did you get did you have an interest for natural health before you did biomedicine
0: uh no, I don't. Oh, I was always being curious, but I don't remember having an interest in natural health before then. It was always just I think what happened was I, when I was at the medical school, uh, there was a Chinese herbalist and acupuncture clinic down the road, right. and I'd often come stop in and have a look. And oh, this is pretty interesting, you know. They had all the patent medicines and things like that, mm. um, and so I often thought oh, this is really interesting. Um, and then I got into it actually because of a frozen shoulder that I got during um, when I was um, working uh, in, as, a, as a researcher. Mm. Uh, I got a shoulder. Didn't respond to any treatments. I went to that same place. Um, I still remember the name. And um, the, the guy there was amazing. Uh, didn't speak pretty much any English. I don't speak any Mandarin. But uh, he just went to town on my shoulder, acupuncture, cupping, heat packs, the works. And um, I left there a couple of hours later. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And didn't um, occur? No, it was got, got heaps better. Um, didn't quite fix it all in one treatment, but it was an amazing difference. And, wow. um, and yeah, I don't know. They just kind of flipped a switch for me, and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could learn this. I thought, I'm not sure if I really want to spend years in China at the moment, because I was about 22 at the time,
1: yeah.
0: and uh, went home, jumped on, maybe it was Google, it was a long time ago, so I'm not sure if Google was around, um, and uh, found out there was, I could study it, not only did I not have to go to China, I, it was actually just around the corner from where I was living, so it
1: was kind of this, the, the start of it. A natural evolution. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the evolution of research in endometriosis. <laughs> uh, there was a segue, wasn't it? So, <laughs> so t- take us through your current research areas. Sure.
0: So we've got a, a, a few current ones at the moment. Um, the two major areas I think we're really looking into uh, right now or in the very near future is we're looking into the effect of herbal medicine on um, endometriosis. So. Um, obviously quite commonly used in the in the community and clinics, um, but very, very little in the way of research has been done, um, especially on Chinese herbal medicine. Uh, mm. some great work. Uh, Dr. Andrew Flowers uh, on this, but really in the terms of randomized controlled trials, very, very little. So we're looking at um, a modification of a traditional Chinese medicine formula, uh, and I apologize for butchering the pronunciation, Guizh Fuling Wan, um, I was blaming it on my Kiwi accent. And, uh, and and so we're looking at that. That's probably the most, uh, the, re- the research suggests that's the most common formula that's used in, um, in China and Taiwan and Hong Kong for endometriosis-like pathologies. Yeah. Um, and so we're looking at, at a modified version of that and how that affects women with endometriosis. So that's a, a randomised double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, Um, and we're looking at um, using that for three months, Um, and then we're um, uh, seeing how that affects women's pain and other endometriosis symptoms, like fatigue um, and other pain symptoms, pain on intercourse, pain on bowel motions, reductions in medication. Um, And moving forward, one of the areas that we're really interested in, um, and I think, the you know patients are really interested in is looking at um, medicinal cannabis uh, for endometriosis, and um, so that's being done in conjunction with um, my fabulous PhD student uh, Justin Sinclair. So not only for his PhD, but we also have um, we're looking, we're trying to you know reach out for some funding you yeah. know to, to into a larger project as well. Um, so those are our main, I guess, herbal medicine and and um, of, of all kinds of herbal medicine I guess um, you know is what we're we're currently focusing on
1: when when you're talking about recruitment for those for particularly for the first one with the modified TCM <laughs> formula um, where yeah. are patients recruited from Orthodox medical <laughs> clinics or people interested was it an advertisement
0: yeah mostly through social media um, wow. we have great support from our um, the endometriosis organisations um, and um, I am part of the uh, clinical advisory group with Endometriosis Australia and they have been you know, absolutely fantastic in terms of supporting research recruitment. So most of our recruits have come via social media postings that they or some of the other groups have made. we found for women with endometriosis advertising, you know, we did use some social media advertising but it was very slow, it didn't work yeah. as well. as. Well.
1: But, but, but that's an interesting th- point about endometriosis Australia because you'll get women from all walks of life, from all, um, you know, bents, if you like, or attractions towards natural medicine or not. Mm. Um, Ed- I guess that's the interesting thing is if people aren't attracted towards natural medicine, would they be willing to try it? And then do you get a bias in your sample?
0: I think um, one of the things we do ask women as you know when they join the trials, you know, are they taking other natural supplements or have they taken them in the past? So obviously I can't see that data at the moment, um, but I'm excited to see what it says. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things we know from women with endometriosis is they are looking for solutions. Yeah. And so I think, like me, perhaps you know, I wouldn't necessarily, have, you know, thought about getting acupuncture. Um, but you know, a frozen shoulder is really painful, um, yeah. and so I think perhaps you know, it's the same thing. Is that maybe people who would not have necessarily gone to a a naturopath or a TCM practitioner, or, or even to a, a health food store, or try to supplement, you know, they are interested in in being part of research either to help others, which is really common, or just because, you know, that they're in pain and they'd they'd like to try something. And I think, you know, being part of a trial also, I think it gives, it's just a little bit more reassuring than just popping into one of the big, you know, uh, chemist or, you know, chains and kind of saying, oh, I've I've got pain, what do you
1: recommend? Mm. Yeah. And uh, to me, it smacks of a need. Um, and, it, and it says a lot about the current treatments and their, and the failure in such i mean we 've seen the issue with the opioids um, but it, what it says is that the pain is so great for these women that they seek other forms of medication, other forms of help
0: absolutely and um, one of the things that we saw is um, so we did a, a survey published it about oh it 's almost a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we looked at what forms of self-care women in Australia used. Right. And we were surprised to find that quite a few, around one in 10 of the women that responded to us, um, were using cannabis um, to manage their pain.
1: Okay.
0: This is especially interesting because at the time that we did the survey, cannabis was not available for medical or legal access. Yep. So they wouldn't have been it illicitly. I think the fact that people are willing to, um, you know, try an illicit product which has potential legal ramifications if they get caught driving, you know, or anything like that, suggests that the pain is bad. Mm. People are needing solutions, you know, because I think most people are not, you know, if if they have mild pain, which is easily manageable, it's unlikely they will seek out, you know, (laughs) A,
1: a, a treat you know they won't go it yeah yeah um, um to, i guess the issue is if they were using it for recreational purposes then that's a separate issue if they were just using yeah. it to get stoned well that's a separate issue they're not they're saying that they're using it as a medication for their pain that's that's yeah, the interesting point for me yeah, absolutely. And, you know,
0: we've done some other research which hasn't been published yet. Um, not only in women with endometriosis, but also in women with primary, dis- primary dysmenorrhea. I say it enough, you'd think I'd be able to pronounce it. Um,
1: <laughs> it's New Zealand accent. That,
0: <laughs> that's what I, I, I just blame everything. For that. Um, you know, you'd and what was interesting is that women weren't really using it re- recreationally um you know they were saying well i never really enjoyed you know a lot of women funnily enough were saying i never really enjoyed it you know recreationally
1: um
0: and and some say i don't even really like the high but what i do like is the pain relief
1: well let's talk Um, a little bit about that the thc versus cbd
0: and that so that's very interesting so um justin and i have been working with a. uh, a company in Canada, actually, um, and so they, um, uh, they uh, make an app that um, is used to log medical use of cannabis. Um, and this data is from America and Canada where it's legal for this use. Mm-hmm. And so they've been very kind. Uh, we've entered into a research partnership with them, mm-hmm. and they've actually allowed us access to uh, this data on women with endometriosis. And so I think we have around 13,000 individual sessions You know where they've used cannabis. Um, it's a lot of data. That's and a lot of data. So we're working.
1: It is.
0: And thankfully, we we're working with a biostatistician um, and they are helping us. We have actually crunched the data or um, well, they've crunched the data. I can't take any credit for that. Um, and it's been very interesting. What we were looking at was exactly that. Can we pick out um, areas that we should be exploring further? So one of the big ones, obviously, is what's the importance of THC versus CBD? Mm-hmm. Um you know, because CBD products, especially in places like America, are available, you know, over the counter um, yeah. from a lot of these stores. Um, I was in Colorado last year for a conference, unrelated to cannabis, and, um, you know, you could buy CBD vape pens. Um, and uh, so we're really interested in in that, you know, because we think that THC is important in this pain relieving aspect.
1: Right. right. <clears throat>
0: But obviously the downside of of that is THC is also psychoactive. And I'm, some people listening, I'm sure will be like, why is that a downside? Um, And it's because really when you think about using it as a, for a medical treatment, um, one of the issues that women have at the moment is endon, oxycodone is, is quite effective Mm -hmm. for treating metriosis pain. Women, you know, use it, it's prescribed a lot. it's not that it's not effective, but it is addictive. Um, and it also impairs functioning. So, you know, we we know, and this is a paper we have coming out hopefully later this year, you know, we, we talked to a lot of women about their experience of, of managing their life within the metriosis. And one of the things that came out was that a lot of them are stuck in this horrible um, kind of catch-22 situation where they need to go to work or they need to look after their kids. And so they don't want to take opioids while they're doing that. Um, but then that means they're in horrible pain, you know? So exactly. So it's, it's a horrible catch-22. So one of the, one of the women, I distinctly, these were several years ago now, but I still remember, she said, basically, I'm in pain all day. And the minute my husband walks in the door, I've got an, endone in my hand waiting you know and as soon as he walks in and can take responsibility for our daughter that's it for me down down the hatch pain goes away but I'm you know I'm I'm wasted
1: um that that would be a funny joke if it wasn't so sad and angering yeah
0: and this exactly and this is her is her life every, every day um, and obviously not just her, but her family, you know. Um, so I think that, you know, she, and she talks about terrible guilt she has mm. over this because you know it's she can't play with her daughter in the evenings, she can't bath her because she's she's waste, you know, on because she she feels so out of it with the opioids, mm. mm. but without that, she's in horrible pain. Yes. So the women are stuck in this terrible. Situation. So while I, I I've got a lot of hope for medicinal cannabis, my cons, you know one of the things that we are worried about is can we find a way for it to be effective without the high? So these women aren't put in this again terribly difficult situation where they have to choose between pain and functioning. Um, so it would be great, um, and this is something that Justin's PhD is working on: is to see, you know how much THC is needed for an effect? Um, Or can we find, you know, is CBD good enough to take the edge off? You know, where you could say, okay, well, actually, I'm going to use CBD during the day. It actually works quite well. Maybe it's not as good as something with a high THC. And again, we don't know. I'm completely speculating. This is something we need to find out. But even if we could find that CBD works 70% as well as a high THC blend. It gives women choices, you know,
1: and so there. Wouldn't it also be great if we could find out all of the effective um, medicaments, including herbal, pharmacological, um, acupuncture, you know, so physical therapies as well. Wouldn't it be great if we could find out, A, what works and how well, so that we could stratify them? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we could use, let's say, a herbal medicine and acupuncture as a baseline, knowing that it's safe and effective for X percent, and then you could add in, you know, your normal analgesics, NSAIDs or paracetamol, and then mm-hmm. THC, and then, and then. You know, I mean, wouldn't that be great if we could have a guideline to help? How many, What? what's the um, guesstimate of... Affected women in Australia.
0: So probably around seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand. You know,
1: know. I mean, this is
0: just—it's
1: look mind-boggling. Absolutely, it's mind-boggling that it's taken till what was it, twenty eighteen, late twenty eighteen, when there was almost official recognition. I mean, if this was a male issue, it'd be out there, mate. You know, absolutely. Mm.
0: And, and unfortunately, even then, it's wonderful that we're getting funding, but, you know, $9 million sounds like so much. It really does to a, to a lay person. You're like, $9 That's the... But for researchers, that's, no. you know, four or five research projects. Um, and when we think of, you know, diabetes and heart disease, dementia, these are all really important areas, yeah. obviously. Um, but it's hard as an endometriosis researcher not to look at their funding and feel very jealous, you know, when it's in times 20 times or more, you know, what we are are working with. Um, And I think things are changing, but it's, it's very slow. Mm. And um, I think, you know, this is one of the major areas we have is we do need, like you say, I mean, obviously everyone with endometriosis wants a cure and that's, Hugely important to focus money on that, but equally important, I think, is to recognize that even if we found out tomorrow what causes endometriosis, say there's one single cause which doesn't seem likely, no. and it can be identified, it's a particular, you know, uh, something that can be switched off with a drug. You know, we're still looking at five or ten years between that discovery and, you know, a drug going on sale. Generally, we still need to think about how are we going to control women's pain for that five to ten years. So I think, you know, it's still really important to make sure we are improving quality of life while we're
1: searching for this very important cure. So I know that we haven't got the real answers, the data will prove but what's your indication what's your feeling of what tends to work for women at the moment so we're going to publish our
0: paper on acupuncture very soon i hope Um, and that showed really promising results it was just a feasibility study so we need to be cautious about you know talking about things in in solid terms but there is other research out there to support acupuncture for endometriosis seems to be really effective. Um, and we're talking in terms of reductions of 40 ish percent in pain scores. Um, wow. Okay. So, you know, this is, it it is effective. I think the, the downside for many women is just the cost. Mm. And this is something that, you know, um, and this is the same issue with medicinal cannabis, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's it's hard to afford these things, especially when we know that women with endometriosis are financially impacted anyway. You know, they're often having to uh, work part-time. They use up all their sick leave. They might be denied promotions. Um, they might have to stop work altogether. So I think it's, you know, so I think acupuncture looks very promising. If there's a way that we could figure out to deliver it in a cost-effective manner. And I think that's something that, as acupuncturists, we need to think about, Um, you know. um, I like the, I mean, and in the past, I've offered a community-style clinic where there's heavily discounted rates come in, there's five or 10 beds or five or 10 chairs, you know, and you can get treatment for a much lower rate um, because the frequency of treatment seems really important for endometriosis. Um, right. Often we don't think about it, but acupuncture, there's definite evidence that it has a dose effect. Mm. You know, it's, it doesn't work by magic. It mm. works physiologically. So it does mean that you know the number of times you treat or the frequency of treatment is really important. Mm. And especially for something like endometriosis, it seems that twice a week, is, is quite important, especially in the beginning to, to kind of get that effect. So that's something to think about. Um, but I think definitely acupuncture, we had very, very low rates of, you know, adverse events, they tended to be mild, the usual kind of a small bruise, you know, a bit of pain when the needle went in, but relatively, obviously very mild and transient. Um, so I think that, shows a lot of promise. I do think the self-report measures that we've had from women using cannabis so far obviously with the caveat it's all self-reported so it might be you know every only people that you know are big fans of the devil's lettuce are continuing to use it and and kind of um coming back to us but definitely we cannot ignore the you know this the data and we have another data set which is Under review at the moment, um, and another journal from New Zealand um, showing almost identical results to our Australian data.
1: Ah, now that's where we—that—that's what's needed when you get the multi-center trials showing similar or same results. That's—that's where the beauty lies.
0: So, I mean, these are all again—it's all self-reported, it's survey data, but you know, there's a trend there. And then when we look overseas, I know it hasn't been published yet, but we've seen poster presentations and things like that. And, you know, the theme, it's the same song, you know. uh, You're getting these big reductions in pain, improvements in sleep, um, reductions in nausea, (coughs) digestive symptoms, which are very common in endometriosis. It also means, you know, when we think about, Treating pain, it doesn't have to be an either or situation, you know, like we can say, okay, cannabis might re- reduce people's need for opioids, maybe by 50%. Mm. And, you know, our data suggests exactly that, that people can stop their opi- opioids, but if they can't, they do reduce them a lot, you know, or it can be used to manage the side effects of other medications that they're needing, you know, um, so... Depression and anxiety are very common in women with endometriosis. Um, they're often put on SSRI or similar medications to help manage that. One of the side effects of that is is kind of nausea. Mm-hmm. You know, so women report using cannabis to reduce the nausea from their other medications. Uh, so, right. I think we can use these as part of a toolkit. Um, you know, because there is no one-size-fits-all. But it's really important that women have access to these effective treatments.
1: So I was going to ask about uh, how much can patients do for themselves and when is the appropriate time that they need to seek professional advice?
0: Yeah, so that's a nice, simple question. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, that is... It's, it's an excellent question, um, and the answer is it's hard to say mm-hmm. because I think certain things, you know, there's a bit of research out there, for example, suggests yoga can be beneficial for women with okay. endometriosis. Yep. You know, but the thing is it's, I think for many women with endometriosis, depending on the location of their lesions and the severity of their pain, exercise especially can be very problematic for them. And again, they're called in a catch-22 because exercise is so beneficial for many things, including mental health. Um, And we now know pretty much if you could make the ultimate pill, it would be medicine, that would be exercise, you Mm -hmm. know, it pretty much, um, you know, helps so many different areas. So I think what can be done is, um, you know, try yoga, try it yourself, you know, is, uh, in, especially during COVID-19, there's some fantastic resources on YouTube, there's these other um, you know, apps that you can get. We used a couple, my wife and I, during the time. We have a great friend who's a yoga teacher. She did her classes online. Um, I think it's worth trying that. And if you find, look, actually, this is making me worse. It's aggravating my pain, you know, you've got two choices. You can go and speak to, you know, a yoga therapist, a professional, you know, and get them to customize a, um, you know, a program for you. And I've done that myself because I have the back problem. Um, and that was fantastic. I find it hard to use kind of over-the-counter, you know, quote-unquote yoga. yoga. Yeah, which it kind of is now, you yeah. know. You can jump on any of these apps and be like, okay, I've got 20 minutes. And they'll be like, right, here's... You know, um, Barry, he's going to take you through 20 minutes of, uh, you know, and for many people that's, that's great. But I think, you know, we need to also think of it as, you know, um, yoga therapists, you know, experts in this area and they can, you know, obviously customize it to you. What responds well, which can't be done so easily at the moment through an app. Same with diet. Um, we know many women with endometriosis try different diets, um, Mm -hmm. We have another paper coming out on this. I'll give you the the spoiler: is that it doesn't seem to matter what diet people use; they seem to feel better on the various diets. And again, this oh, is okay. self this is self reported data. Right. But I think when we think about it, it does make a bit of sense, is that most of these diets it's about paying attention to what you eat. Whether you're um, eating vegan, whether you're eating keto, you're unlikely to be able to pop to McDonald's or KFC, you know, and and eat there. You, you generally have to think more about what food you're putting into. So I think that, you know, that's one of the, the things is that, you know, by paying attention, most people's diet probably improves. You know, they're probably eating more, unprocessed food they're eating more vegetables um that's not to say certain diets don't have more evidence for them and certainly one of the areas which seems promising is the fodmap diet right. um, and actually some researchers got some money as part of the recent nine million dollars um, to actually investigate how well the fodmap diet works looks very very promising with the caveat that the FODMAP diet is not designed as a lifelong diet. No. It's designed as a symptom, you know, to, to treat symptoms. So, and we know when we analysed the data from our participants, um, the you know what they said and the kind of you know when we gave them you know free text to talk about it was that FODMAP was great for their symptoms but bad for their social life. You know, so yeah, it was a balance. Right very hard like if you you know um, if you have to eliminate all these Uh, and so we need to think about okay so how do we transition people to a a diet that works and at the moment the honest answer is we don't know what that diet might look like and some women report fantastic results with you know going vegan others report fantastic results with going keto others report you know great results with going dairy free or gluten free So, we just don't know, but we do know that diet, obviously, like many other conditions, seems to play a role in symptom management. Do you
1: think Um, so? Sorry, you go. go.
0: No, I was just going to say, you know, and again, this is where going to speak to a dietitian or a nutritionist could be really valuable. Um, You know, diets are probably one of the major areas where. Um if you're on Instagram and you look good in a bikini, you can give advice. Um, you know. And I do know. No, yeah. No. <laughs> I mean Pete Evans, I don't know if he wears a bikini, but um, you know, one of the things is it's you know, it, it's very tempting to to take advice from yeah. you know, people. Um but I think again, we need to value the expertise. Of people that have studied,
1: yeah. you know,
0: um, these things, and and speak to someone about, you know, a plan that they can customize for you again. You know, same with yoga. I think often with natural therapies, just in general, we tend to sometimes downplay expertise, and we think, well, we can read a blog or we can mm. watch a YouTube clip, and it, it's not. Replacement, uh, especially in women with endometriosis, because they have very complex pathologies, they often have a lot of comorbidities, you know, migraines, IBS-like symptoms. They're all very, very common, um, and so I think it's worth investing, you know, some time and, and uh, money in, you know, going to see a professional.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that Sue Shepherd uh, devised that diet. She was, she is celiac. Um, and she devised that diet to be the low FODMAP diet, not the no yep. FODMAP diet. And this is where people's switch mentality comes in. Rather yep. than managing something and saying, "Okay, I have to restrict or lower something," it's no, it's bad, all bad, yep. wrong. This is where you need to speak to somebody who's appropriately trained and educated in that area. Yeah. Well, what yeah, about exactly. though? What about though the concept about empowerment that that You're talking about, um, you say that women um, sort of choose their own diets. And one of the issues that's overarching endometriosis is that women aren't listened to. Diagnosis is late along the path where disease has progressed, pain has progressed. I mean, it's just a sad situation. It's a sad medical situation. And so we need appropriately trained medical practitioners who listen to women's issues and not don't box them so is part of this issue empowerment of women that they feel listened to
0: absolutely and i think we need to be careful because we don't want to we want to empower women we don't want to put all the responsibility on them a good point so i think and the reason i say that is cuz someone said that to me And I wish I could remember who it was. They're smarter than I am. Because I was talking about all these resources, you know, that we're making for women and there's these fantastic programs which are being done, um, you know, you know, educational programs and just amazing. Mm. But I think we also need to say, all right, it's not, we can't say if we just educate women, you know that that'll fix the problem absolutely we need to empower women with good knowledge about their health but when they go and see their doctor you know like they can be very empowered and they can still not be listened to so we need to attack the problem on on multiple fronts and i'm happy to say that that is definitely happening in australia mm-hmm. um you know as part of the recent national action plan for endometriosis, there's a huge amount of money, time, and effort being put into improving the, the quality of education around women's health, you know, for, for doctors, training, you know, ongoing training. Um, and I think, it, I'm hoping it also will just be, unfortunately, some time for people's attitudes to change. Because like you say, you know, the research clearly shows, and, you know, we have some more, again, papers coming out on this, women are not listened to, you know. No. Um, they present to the emergency department in severe pain. They're they are they're told, one that I remember, um, is one of them was told she had an ingrown hair from shaving her bikini line, which was causing her pain. You know, um, uh, others were told they had a it makes UTI. Make to
1: scream.
0: I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> So it's just, and a part of it is just, you know, there's, there's a lack of awareness, you know, um, of what, you know, uh, endometriosis is, I suppose. But again, I think it's, it also reflects a systemic problem.
1: Mm.
0: Of women's pain is marginalized. It's not listened to. Um, there's some fantastic research done by uh, Professor Jane Usher and my friend, Dr. Alex Hawkey around this, you know, women are uh, positioned as hysterical, you know, and this has been going on for a long time. Such you know, a genetic term, isn't it? It is. Well, I it's mean, hyster- even hysterical, you know, uh, the word. It's, you know, and women, we might not use the word in, you know, hysterical in medical notes or anything like that, but the principle, I would say, is still there, you know. It's the pain... You know, is all in women's heads, and and I don't mean that in the actually scientific accurate term that pain really is in everybody's heads. Mm. But you know, the idea is that it's being overblown, it's not that bad, um, and you know, it, it's it's. I think any anyway, I would challenge anyone to spend a day with a woman with fibromyalgia and no. think that you know the pain is being exaggerated.
1: Well, you know, you know what. If a health professional dictated to the patient what their pain was and was not, isn't that tantamount to assault? Because in my, in my memory, it is the right of every patient to adequate pain relief, and if that is denied them, that is assault.
0: Well, I am not touching that with a 10-foot cold. But... <laughs>
1: I'm, I, think... I actually wonder if we should empower women on that one. I, di- I did want to make a call-out, um, Mike, too. You were talking about education before, and we really mm-hmm. do have to make a call-out to um, Don the fantastic work of Donna Chicha and Professor Jason Abbott and others, but of Endometriosis Australia. I mean, that is an organisation that has browbeaten the Australian government into waking up.
0: Yeah, look, and obviously... Um... I can't speak highly enough of, of Endometriosis Australia, and especially Donna, um, who, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, is a great friend of mine. She is tirelessly Tireless. working. You know, and really, I don't know, even looking at other academics, and we have problems with work-life balance and working too much, but I know very few people who work like um, Donna does. Mm, mm, you know, she's a um, driven little, woman just, we were at a, uh, you know, an endometriosis event um, and she's multitasking, you know, she's on her phone answering, you know, questions that people are posting, you know, about what they should do, counselling, you know, all the while, you know, one hand on the phone doing that and she just gives and gives. So, I mean, absolutely, um, you know, without these advocacy groups, Um, and the the effort that they put in, you know, who knows where we would be. Mm. But I think I would feel very confident in saying we wouldn't have a national action plan, we wouldn't have $9 million. And, you know, for all of my complaints about it not being enough, we wouldn't have, I I think without them, we wouldn't have $9.
1: So we need them cloned so that you can get multiples of $9 million.
0: Absolutely, I think if I think, yeah, if we could clone Donna, um, you know, that would be pretty. That would be quite useful. Heaven sure. help Canberra. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that I think the government would put a stop to.
1: it would be running to hide. Yeah, but yeah, look, Mike, you're doing fantastic work on so many, so many different fronts, from you know the sort of sociological aspects to the physical medicine and how you and indeed every natural and medical practitioner can help women who are affected by endometriosis. I thank you so much for taking us through at least a snippet of what your research is entailing today and we need to give also a call out to those other researchers um, who are involved of course Justin my great friend but there are many others behind the scenes working tirelessly to help women with endometriosis. Uh,
0: Look absolutely Australia is hitting it out of the park and as tough as it is for me as a new Zealander to, to say nice things about australia or australians there are so many fantastic researchers here um and we are all you know passionate and driven and you know i consider you know these people friends and and colleagues they're working so hard you know on different areas we've all got different expertise but you know everybody's working towards the same goal which is you know improving quality of life of women with endometriosis looking for a cure looking for better management looking for earlier diagnosis you know um and yeah so there's some amazing work going
1: on thanks so much for joining us on fx medicine thanks for
0: having me back this is
1: fx medicine i'm andrew whitfield cook
0: Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.